0: Hi guys. Welcome back to part three of episode 130 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. This is going to be four parts. (laughs) Thank you for bearing with me. Um that it's taking a bit longer, as I said on the update episode that I posted yesterday just to get to them. Um so when I like if there's ever a bigger delay, I post an update and just say for like, you know, it's like a minute long, and I just say it's coming, so you guys um aren't a bit confused, and then I just delete that that 's just for future reference um so yeah, as I kind of formatted all of this, I realized that this makes sense to be four parts. I hope that you're enjoying it. If you're not, it's okay. We'll be back to other episodes shortly. Don't worry, part four won't be as long coming. Um, but I've got a couple of updates quickly before I get into part three. And I just want to give a shout out at the top of this for two sources that were really helpful for part three, which were the Phnom Penh Post and the POWnetwork.org, which is run in the United States and seems to keep track of a lot of missing uh, POWs and reporters that no one else seems to be keeping track of. Um, So first of all, I forgot to say I posted it in Patreon, but a couple of weeks ago um, there was closure of sorts for the Narumi Kurosaki case, albeit they still don't have her body, but Nicolas Cepeda was found guilty in the French court in Besançon of um, her murder And he was sentenced to 28 years, I believe, in prison. Now it seems, you know, that he'll probably do less than that with parole and things like that, but at least they saw it for what it was. And I think that's the first case we've covered on this podcast that happened, you know, as we were doing it and then had an update that I could give you, I suppose, The other one I'm waiting for an update on and it's weird um, is the Caroline Crouch case. So the trial started against her husband who has pled guilty, albeit he's using the I was triggered defence by her leaving me um, in Greece. But it's really weird because there's been no press updates for three weeks now. There was in the first week and then nothing. It's very strange. I don't know if they've got like a press blackout or something like that, but I do keep checking and I will keep you posted. Um, also, welcome new patron who came on board yesterday, M Mac. Welcome. There's two other stories in the same vein as the podcast that I just wanted to bring up quickly that I, I saw in the news this week. I'm I'm following like quite a lot of active stories, including that serial killer who's on the run with the prison guard, is anyone else following that? Um, and a couple of people from you know down under my neck of the woods, so to speak, uh, kind of stories that involved maybe you know a bit of tragedy overseas. So, the first one, um, was a young man in his 20s called Joseph Day, who's from New Zealand, lovely looking guy, um, seemed to have the world at his feet, living over there with um uh, he was living in Bristol in the city Bristol with his girlfriend who i think is british um and he had at one point worked as a cameraman for tv new zealand and um she was away for the night with friends in london it's a few hours from bristol and she um just everything seemed normal like and then um i saw the news because she'd reported him missing she came home from london and um she'd asked him to fix some blinds and that was the last communication she had with him and he wrote back that he would, that he was just going to have a chill night on his own at their new flat that they'd moved into, getting married later this year, planning the wedding, all that, Um, and he wasn't there. So she reported him missing and um, a couple of days later the police found his body. Um, It appears that he took his own life jumping from a gorge in Bristol Um, and it just really made me very sad because from the outset he had everything, you know, and I kind of got the feeling that his career had been a little bit derailed by maybe lockdowns and things that said he was working as a builder, but for all intents and purposes, he had, you know, everything going for him and it just, it just made me really sad because the fallout from that um, is just immense in terms of what his long-term girlfriend loses, what his friends lose, what his family loses. You know everything, um, and it's it's so not talked about. Young men, uh, with mental illness, it it just appears like he didn't have any problems from the outset and was dealing with all this on his own. So please, if you're one of those people, please seek help. Um, because Joseph Day, he meant so much more to people than I think he probably thought he did, and he's he probably thought he would, they would be better off without him, and it it just made me very sad. I mean, I just wanted to bring him up. The other one is a young Australian mum in her late twenties. She, um, her name's Tani Shanks. Um, very strange story. So about a week ago, um, her little girl, who's two, she shares her with um, a Mexican boyfriend. So Tani, look, reading about her, she's really interesting. She travelled the world from the time she was like eighteen. Left Australia, lived all over Europe. Um, America. She finally settled in Mexico about eight years ago. She loved Mexico and she met a guy, she had a little girl, uh, with him and they have been on the rocks. So she was planning on returning to Australia with her little girl. And she was in the process of getting the little girl who's to, um, her a passport in order to return to Australia. Cause the little girl has only ever lived in Mexico. Um, and surprise, surprise, she's gone missing. So is the boyfriend uh, slash husband. So the little girl was found wandering the streets of Cancun at night. Uh, independent witnesses saw her being dropped off by their father um, just in the street <laughs> and him taking off. Now, it doesn't take a, a genius to realise what's going on. It seems that the press are trying to kind of be careful with how they report it, but come on, let's be real. Um, Women are really at risk when they're trying to leave a situation like that and unfortunately I believe that Tani Shanks has been a victim of just yet another victim. Her family's from Queensland and I just think the Mexicans have done so well in terms of how they've coordinated it through from identifying who the little girl was. She had no identifiers on her. They were so good, um, immediately scooping her up, calling child services and being able to trace who she was. Tani's family has arrived in Mexico from Queensland, um, given like emergency access um, to get there to pick up the little girl and to look for Tani. Um, And I'm just following that story and I wanted to bring both of those up. It is ongoing. The issue is they were travelling around all over the place in the south of Mexico um, she could be anywhere, and so could he. And this is an issue. Um, but the little girl doesn't have either parent now. Um, and grandparents she probably doesn't have a whole lot to do with until this moment. You can imagine how kind of lost she is, and it's just yeah. Just jealousy and loss of control um makes men a lot of the time. Do crazy things. So I'll keep you posted on that case um, and RIP to Joseph Day. So getting into this week's episode, this is the third instalment of the Sean Flynn case. It will go to four parts. It's rare to do a multi part of these days, but I feel this one warranted it to organise it all. Um, and next week we'll be back to regular scheduled programming. So patron Kristen actually found the book Inherited Risk that I cited on part one, which talks about both Errol Flynn and Sean Flynn. So she, I couldn't get hold of the book as I explained on part one. So she actually read the parts on Sean to see if she could add anything. And this is what she wrote to me. Quote, I read the sections of the book about Sean. It felt like the overall theme was like father, like son. He tried to deny his father's influence while trying to compete with it. It wasn't that flattering of Sean, to be honest. The author mentions Sean as being brought up with impeccable manners by his mother, but that his father introduced him to prostitutes at a young age. I guess Sean and a friend went down to Cuba as teenagers and ended up working as pimps at their quote-unquote favourite whorehouse to fund their trip. And apparently the Balinese princess he fell in love with was 17 and still in high school. After the book um, explained how he and Dana disappeared and what may have happened to them, they ended the book by describing Sean as a war lover with a death wish. Sean had tried sex, drugs, travel and mysticism, but only the dangers of combat satisfied his addiction to the edge. And that was a quote. She said, I don't think you missed out on much by not being able to get your hands on the book. Your research has been great, but I found the book a bit depressing and cynical. It did paint Sean as much more courageous than Errol in that he did the things his father only acted out, unquote. And that was so helpful. And Initially when I read it, I was like, I'm not sure if I believe it because the guy who wrote it, there's quite a lot of books on Sean and most of them are written by guys that I've talked about on parts two and will continue to in parts three and four. And they're people who worked with him on the ground in Vietnam as, a, as war photojournalists. But that guy, I don't think, I think he knew him growing up um, and some of the sources are quite tenuous. But then again, I don't fully doubt it because even um, friends, like in part two that I, I quoted, their first impressions of Sean weren't great, like he thought he was top shit. Regardless, you know, <clears throat> I don't think he deserved what he got in the end, um, but I think... As we get into in this part in particular, I think you'll find that Sean, um, I, I don't know how else to put it other than I think he got turned on by conflict. Um, yeah, and we'll get into that kind of as we go on. So where we left off in part two, we discussed Dana Stone's life and journey to Southeast Asia and his work in Vietnam as a photojournalist. And we kind of paralleled that with Sean's life and how he ended up there too. So we ended up in early April 1970, 52 years ago, about a month ago. Now, initially when I did that maths, it was like I went 42 years and then I was like, that's not right. 1970 was 52 years ago. That's mad. I skip a whole decade when I add up things and I think it's 1990 to 2000. So the setting is Phnom Penh. It is a hot, humid city that I have experienced And I was not a huge lover of, which I'll probably get into more in part four when I talk about a few of my recollections of it. I love Siem Reap, um, did not like Phnom Penh, but Phnom Penh is where you will go to experience a lot of what is now tourist attractions, I guess, like the Killing Fields and Chilslang Prison, which was one of Pol Pot's political prisons, which I'll talk about more in part four. But 1970, we are in the midst of a political coup and five years away from one of the darkest eras in human history that I myself and probably many of you have had a small glimpse into just by visiting Cambodia. How I'm going to frame this episode is that I will discuss Cambodia briefly up until what brought Sean and Dana there then their disappearances and then a little bit about fellow journalists who went missing in 1970 as well and then in part four I'm going to talk about the Cambodia post Sean and Dana um, and the investigations and theories into what happened to these two young men. It breaks my heart I can't do more on the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot um, but I think four episodes will be enough. To discuss Cambodia at length in any way that I would want to would take up an entire podcast series. I love Cambodia. I fell in love with it. I, I love I love Thailand. I love Vietnam. Um, I've never been to Laos. All of these countries border and are so close to Cambodia. But Cambodia feels so distinct and so unique from those places. And my time, both times there, speaking to different people, um, who came and went, I would sit in this cafe every morning and it would just be like this constant stream of tourists and things. And you'd end up talking to them about where they'd come from. And a lot of had come in from Laos or, or up from Ho Chi Minh city and, um, kind of talking about their experiences. And all of them would say the same thing, especially the one, the long haulers who had stayed for a period of time because they loved it so much. And they'd say, there's just something, you know, about Cambodia that is, that's so unique um, it's so different and the people are so different and the culture is so different. There's no confusing it with these other neighbouring countries. Its smells are unique, its sights are unique, its history, its people, its landscape, how it operates. Um, oh, some things you will see there, um, especially if you don't just stay for a couple of days and move on, it, it's quite shocking. I saw some really, like, fucked up stuff when I was there. Um, In terms of police corruption and things like that, um, what kind of money can buy you and things that you just kind of witness on a day-to-day existence that is shocking for someone from Melbourne, you know, you just wouldn't see some of the things that you see, that's all. Cambodia is located in Southeast Asia with a coastline on the Gulf of Thailand. Vietnam runs alongside on the east, Thailand on the west and Laos sits above it. The Mekong Delta winds its way up parts of Cambodia and there's hip little beachside areas that are quite popular now like Sihanoukville. There's large cities like Phnom Penh um, in the southeast and Siem Reap in the northwest, where I found myself falling in love with and teaching. You'll regularly find tourists there coming into Phnom Penh overland from Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon, or getting the bus in from Bangkok or flying in, or coming in overland after spending time, you know, in Laos. Cambodia is also known as Kampuchea or the Kingdom of Cambodia. It is a Buddhist country of around 17 million people with a long and tragic history. But may I just say from the outset that nowhere in the world have I gone where the people are as kind, helpful and generous as they are in Cambodia. Um, the land dates back to the prehistoric era and the earliest royal families were instituted in Cambodia in the year 800 AD. Now, you'll find that most people speak Khmer, which I did a few lessons in, and I could speak kind of everyday sayings um, by the end of my four months there, but it's very hard, and to see it written will spin you out. (laughs) Um, However, you'll find that quite a lot of older people, like you can find in parts of Vietnam speak French. So if you speak French, um, that's a bonus. But the issue is uh, Pol Pot's regime and the Khmer Rouge wiped out a lot of the older population or people who would be older population now. So I think the average age there is about 16. And it's very rare um, to find older people there. And if you do, they're like a diamond in the rough because so many Pol Pot essentially wiped out almost half of the population of his own country, and we'll get to that in part four. The Khmer Empire refers to the centuries between the 9th and 15th centuries in Cambodia, and most of you will probably have heard of Angkor Wat, which it's one temple in a massive temple complex which brings in millions of tourists every year. It's on pretty much everyone's bucket list and it's located um, in Siem Reap or, you know, just outside of Siem Reap. It's a kind of Buddhist temples but it's a massive geological park. You need at least a whole day. There are a lot of people go there to see the sunset or the sunrise and it's got essentially hundreds of temples, albeit a lot of them are ruins now, but the main ones that people go to see are Angkor Wat. Um, however, my favourite was... Uh, Bayon, and it has faces carved into it. And it's a fe- a feminine temple. It's just beautiful. Um, and Ta Prom, which is kind of most famous for Tomb Raider, filming parts of it there. Angelina Jolie, she um, when I was in Cambodia, her face was everywhere, and I used to go to this cafe, and her face was on every on every page of the menu. <laughs> because she used to go there when she filmed Tomb Raider and she adopted her eldest son, is it Maddox, from Cambodia uh, because she fell in love with Cambodia. And as much as I'm not really a fan of hers, um, we have that in common. I just understand why she felt so drawn to it at a similar age to when I did as well. um. Angkor Wat was a centre of worship for centuries and it was actually lost in the jungle for a very long time and then in the 1800s it was rediscovered again by this French explorer Um, and we're really lucky today that so many temples still stand and it's a World Heritage Site because I think if Pol Pot had had his way and had a little bit longer uh, we wouldn't have that because he was all about Complete removal of history, denial of history year zero um, i can 't get into the mind of someone like that, which we 'll talk about more in part four i 've never been able to really wrap my head around how he could do that to his own people, but then again i don 't think he had a very strong tie to Cambodia or anyway because he was mostly educated overseas, picked and chose different parts of Marxism and communism and things like that that he liked, came back and fucked up his own country. Cambodia was part of what was considered French Indochina under the French colonial empire, and you can still note this in much of the architecture and the big wide boulevard type streets, particularly in Siem Reap. I just loved that about about the city. <clears throat> you got trees kind of crossing over the streets. It's it's really beautiful, um, and you can sense that in particularly in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. I haven't been to Hanoi but I've heard it's pretty much similar um the this french style architecture that if it wasn't for <clears throat> the locals and kind of the poverty you see around you and um what you're eating and the smells and things just looking at the architecture you you would think you were in some little french some french city or village The French lost control of Cambodia over World War II to the Japanese, but they reclaimed it post-war, and this is kind of when our story starts to kick in. Cambodia gained its independence from France in 1953, (coughs) and King Norodom Sihanouk was instated as the head of the Kingdom of Cambodia in 1960 after his father's short reign and subsequent death. Now, King Norodom Sihanouk was actually king before his father's death. He then abdicated so he could enter politics. And when his father died, he took up the mantle again as chief of state, Prince Sihanouk. Now, Sihanouk, it's hard to get a read on how people feel about him. You see, when you're there, you see a lot of portraits of him. You'll never see one of Pol Pot. Although Khmer Rouge soldiers the Khmer Rouge still does exist as a political party, I will say that. And when I was there, I taught at a school um, and one of the people connected to the school offered to take me up into the <clears throat> into the mountains to talk to a Khmer Rouge soldier who still lives up there, who lives kind of off the grid, and I declined. <clears throat> but Sihanouk. Really, from the outset, he tried to balance the demands of the left and the right, in, and he tried to stay neutral in terms of foreign affairs, but most historians today look back and show that he was really more aligned to socialists and communists, and when you see who he aligns himself with later, you'll realise that that was probably where the sentiment lay. Unfortunately, Sianuk's downfall would be himself would be him aligning himself with the wrong people and that would signify the downfall of this country that was once cosmopolitan, had universities, highly educated people, um, a lot of opportunity um, to become one of the poorest countries in the world even today um, where people don't have those opportunities and they're still trying to work their way up from what one man decided to do back in the mid-70s. In early 1970, when Sean Flynn and Dana Stone found themselves in the capital, Phnom Penh, covering what's called the Cambodian coup, Cambodia was in a very precarious position with itself, with its neighbours and with foreign powers and with journalists. So, on the 18th of March 1970, just a couple of weeks before Sean and Dana would go missing, there was a major upheaval that they believe signifies the start of the Cambodian Civil War. The Cambodian National Assembly voted to get rid of the embattled Prince Nordam Sihanouk. Now, he, when he put himself or when he became chief of state as they put it um he basically made it so that a chief of state has no fixed term of office and if you've listened back as far as the John Brisker case who went missing in Uganda he was an NBA star and I this is similar in the sense that this is a second dictator I've talked about and on that episode we talk about Idi Amin All of these dictators, what they have in common is generally a cult of personality around them. Uh, When I talk about Pol Pot, you'll understand that a bit more. But, you know, initially they're very popular and then the reality starts to come out pretty quickly. But Prince Sihanouk, he made it so that there was no fixed term of office, which is generally a bad indicator. (laughs) There's no, like, general elections. He just stays in. Um, Very much... Like our buddy up in North Korea, or you know a lot of things that are going on right now um but he'd he tried to keep everyone happy so he could stay in power <clears throat> by balancing the needs of both the left and the right um but while mostly siding with the left, which was basically the Socialist Party now. The, there was a, the next person in line behind Sihanouk was their prime minister, whose name was Lon Nol, And he was actually right wing. So he believed in like having a republic and he was anti-socialist, anti-communist. And basically, in this move in March of 1970, he used the emergency powers that he had at his disposal because Prince Sihanouk was touring Europe and parts of Asia, including China at the time. And he essentially was able to make himself head of state. He then removed the prince and the queen consort, who was Sihanouk's wife, uh, from power, and he declared the Khmer Republic. Cambodia had mostly stayed out of what was going on next door during the Vietnam War. But as I mentioned on part two, Sihanouk knew that Viet Cong and the People's Army of Vietnam, which is known as the PAVN, which is a paramilitary group within socialist Vietnam, that they were. Operating within Cambodia's borders and he was aware of that but he tolerated it. There was no hard line on get out of our country with Sihanouk. But when Lon Nol, Lon Nol had a different approach to that, he said no more and he issued an ultimatum to these groups, including the Viet Cong, to leave which is not going to please them. So this is all weeks before Sean and Dana turn up. In March 1970, when Sean and Dana arrived into Phnom Penh, unfamiliar with Cambodia, they'd never uh, really reported there before. Their experience was in the Vietnam War and what was going on there. Sean was freelancing. Um, Dana was on assignment for CBS. At this point, there were huge anti-Vietnamese protests happening in Phnom Penh, where the two men ended up basing themselves. And I believe Dana's wife, from an interview with Celine Grant that I saw, um, he talked about how when they went missing, she was in the hotel in Phnom Penh, you know, panicking and, you know, saying that she had to find him. A deadline was issued by Lon Nol um, for North Vietnamese forces to leave Cambodia. And this deadline was March 15th, 1970. He said if they did not, they were going to face military action. This did not happen. Um, and the tension and riots only escalated. Now, ultimately, Prince Sihanouk was removed from government. Lon Knoll basically had given my understanding of it because my most of my knowledge, at least back in the day, was on 1975 onwards, not particularly around this time. Um, But kind of brushing up on it, my understanding was that Lon Nol had given Sihanouk a lot of leeway. He really didn't want to overthrow him. He would put pressure on him to end his relationship with uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam. And ultimately, he felt that he had no choice but to remove Sihanouk. Um, entirely, and that would include getting him out of the country, um, if not killing him, I suppose. Ultimately, Lon Nol did not want to, but those around him allegedly held him at gunpoint to sign the papers to finally overthrow Sihanouk in his absence. Sihanouk, by this stage, was in China, um, could not return to Cambodia, but was raging over there and basically threatening to kill everyone. Lon Nol was now head of state. On the 23rd of March 1970, Sihanouk went on Chinese radio and he demanded an overthrow of Lon Nol. And because of this, this because you've got two opposing forces and you're always going to have people on both sides of it within a country. Lon Nol's brother, who wasn't even involved in anything, he just worked on some plantation out in the middle of nowhere, was like murdered by other people on the plantation just for purely being Lon Nol's brother. Um, and a lot of people were killed during this time. Demonstrations were very violent in the Cambodian army you know, turned tanks on its own people um, to, s- to kind of suppress these riots. And Sianuk had now by this point aligned himself with communist insurgents who he named or he nicknamed uh, the Khmer Rouge, which translates to Red Khmeres. Red meaning, you know, communist and Khmer being, um, you know, Cambodia (laughs) Um, or the culture I suppose and the language. The result of this coup was that in 1970 North Vietnamese forces ultimately invaded Cambodia um, and thousands were murdered and I've got to keep bringing it back to Sean and Dana and other journalists coming in for a scoop at this time. And as listener Nate kind of has talked about, because I've shown him pictures of this and kind of talked a little bit about it because he's quite interested in this time in Asia, particularly Cambodia, um, Vietnam, sorry, it kind of he, he said, look at what they're wearing and they've got these expensive cameras and you're essentially, he said, you know, like you would immediately be seen as a spy or you're a sitting duck uh, for opportunists. You are so identifiable as American. Um, it's, it's really ballsy and honestly pretty stupid. Um, as much as you, war reporters, kind of live and breathe this, uh, there's got to be limits. And I honestly think in the last moments, Dana Stone had reached that limit. But as uh, Kristen wrote about reading the book, Sean Flynn, I think, had maybe a bit of a death wish. So there, were, at this point, there was four, f- almost half a million Vietnamese people living in Cambodia. And this is where it's very similar to Idi Amin in Uganda, his ousting of uh, British people and Indians and British Indians um, and giving them a deadline to leave. But about 100,000 Vietnamese people left Cambodia by this time and another two hundred thousand were forcibly uh, forced to leave and return to South Vietnam so basically this big population of Vietnamese uh, living in Cambodia uh, which was almost a million at that point became just over a hundred thousand um, and this was within just a few months of the Cambodian coup. These, all of these events I'm talking about marked the start of the Cambodian Civil War, and essentially it was Lon Nol backed by the US against the Khmer Rouge and North Vietnam. Now, ultimately, if you want to know what happened to these people before we get into Sean and Dana's last day, the Queen, who was Prince Sihanouk's consort, albeit when you look him up, he had about eight wives from my memory. Two of them, or no, three of them overlapped at the same time, um, which I didn't think was legal uh, in Cambodia, but maybe it was. Uh, and he had, by my count, 14 children. Um, so I think that was pretty normal. So... The Queen Consort at the time, she was kept under house arrest uh, for a couple of years and ultimately in 1972 she was exiled to China to be with one of her sons and she died there um, very shortly after of an illness They actually allowed the families to leave, which is kind of opposed to what happened during the Russian Revolution uh, with the Romanovs or the French Revolution. Um, In this instance, they allowed them to leave. Now, if it had been five years later and Pol Pot was around, I don't think they would have been allowed to just leave. Lon Nol um, ultimately would stick around and try to retain power in Cambodia until 1975. But when the Khmer Rouge party under Pol Pot seized power, he would see the writing on the wall and he would flee to the United States. Actually, he lived in Hawaii and then he ultimately ended up living in California um, and he was allowed to seek asylum there. Now, he died in 1985 at the age of 72 in Fullerton, California. And I was thinking, can you imagine just being the neighbour of this little old Cambodian man and you start talking to him and have a cup of tea with him or something on his porch and he's telling you how he led a coup against the prince, like the king of Cambodia, which gave way to Pol Pot coming in and you're, like, not sure if he's got dementia or if this is legitimate. (laughs) Like, I could just be crazy. Like... How many people are just walking around with crazy stories like that? In the theatre, I went to the theatre once in London. I sat next to an old man. He's British with his wife. And he was the first Brit through the gates of Bergen-Belsen prison to liberate it at the end of the war. Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Isn't that crazy? Prince Sianuk um, weirdly, uh, was reinstated in 1993 as king of Cambodia. He withstood multiple coup attempts. Long story short, um, and he finally abdicated in 2004. Now, Norodom Siamoni succeeded him as the king of Cambodia, and he's still in power today because even though it's been almost 20 years since he came in, um, there's no there's no end to the power. But I do find it weird that a a National Assembly votes on who's going to be the king, which is pretty strange. Um, But it seems like he's in it for the long haul. Now, Prince Sihanouk actually only died in 2012, uh, just two weeks short of his 90th birthday. He was pretty old and feeble. He died in China where he was receiving treatment uh, for a number of things because Cambodia does not have the best hospitals, um, just an FYI, just another offshoot of what destroying your own country does. Um, he, It's hard to gauge how people really see him now. It seems like he's held in high regard by some people uh, but not with others, which I guess is bound to happen. So what happened between the 1970 coup and 1993 when King Sihanouk made his return? I'll get to that on part four. It's safe to say Sean Flynn and Dana Stone walked into a very complex agitated situation in Cambodia and part of me feels a little bit angry when I think about journalists doing this. I understand the reasons why they're there. I do get all that and I did a degree in the subject of journalism. It doesn't mean that I myself would do the same things that they did, um, especially not when you're a freelancer and a, so your job isn't depending on it. Like with Sean Flynn, he was, he was freelancing for time. Dana was on assignment for CBS, uh, a little bit different kind of setup, but, Part of me feels that they didn't fully appreciate how intense the situation was, what was going on, and that they didn't heed any warnings that had been given to them. I also don't feel like they were properly briefed by their employers. I don't know how things worked in 1970. It's very different now in terms of how it's regulated. But even as stringers for Time and CBS... I would think that their employers still would have briefed them properly on what was going on day to day, um, on remaining safe, attending press briefings, um, and the dangers of what was a looming civil war zone. Now, 1970 was an incredibly scary year in Southeast Asia for journalists, um, and more went missing in 1970 than any other year in Cambodia. And towards the end of this episode, I'll read you out the names of a few. You would think that these two men, after years of working in Vietnam, would understand how to protect themselves and to take precautions to travel um, in groups, to take kind of transports that are organised for them with uh, chaperones that are organized for them basically Im- embedded journalism, like I talked about on part two. But Sean Flynn and Dana Stone to me, at least Sean, they come off like kind of cowboys, like they got to Cambodia and they bought two motorbikes, and that is how people get around. They're still motorbikes, you know, no one wears a helmet. there still, um, there's kids riding motorbikes that are like five years old. Um, it's all very crazy um, and disordered and mental but kind of intoxicating at the same time. Um, but also until 1968 in Cambodia, foreign journalists were banned from Cambodia completely. Um, if you were a journalist, you were turned away at the border. You were not entering there. It's like trying to go to North Korea now as a journalist. So Cambodia had only had, you know, a year and a half um, to get used to having journalists around and suddenly they're everywhere in particular from what I could find it seemed to be a lot of Americans, French um, and Japanese um, and now they were kind of precariously allowed to report there but it seemed that a lot of it was state-sponsored um, and it seemed that some of them were kind of enjoying the thrill of it as well. So Kurt Volkert and T. Jeff Williams, who were journalists at the time, wrote a book called A Cambodian Odyssey and the Deaths of 25 Journalists. Um, and Kurt Volkert wrote, quote, The war was coming to Phnom Penh. The good news was that driving to the combat areas took less time. The bad news was that you might not make it back. In Cambodia, our transfer to... Our transportation was a rented four-door Mercedes diesel sedan. That was it. There was no backup. If a Mercedes stalled on an empty road, you were stuck, unquote. So he's basically saying that Vietnam had had years to kind of get used to having journalists there and it was all very streamlined in terms of getting around and transports and things like that and you were pretty safe. You knew where to go, where not to go, things like that. Cambodia it was so new having them there and I hate his story like I hate his terminology the good news was that driving to the combat areas took less time because he's basically saying you could base yourself in Phnom Penh and drive out to these areas on your, you know in no time and Vietnam took longer to get around and you get helicopters and planes and things like that so he's kind of saying it was more convenient for reporters um but Basically, it's very important what he said about a rented four-door Mercedes diesel sedan. Other sources call them limousines, not stretch limos, but a limousine sedan, because essentially there was a fleet of these available in Cambodia for journalists to use, and they would travel with um, a local Cambodian guide, generally, who would do the translating at checkpoints and things like that. Um, but the issue was there was no kind of follow-up if if you got stuck. Um, there was no help. You were probably a sitting duck. And also um, there was less journalists there and no US military, um, so no one's coming to help you. So it's important to keep all of those things in mind. April 6, 1970 was the last day that anyone would ever officially see Sean Flynn or Dana Stone alive Um, and the details of that day are actually somewhat vague because they didn't really have their friends uh, that I've quoted before uh, like Neil or Tim around by that point um, to kind of back up what was happening at the time. So Sean and Dana had their red Honda-rented motorbikes um, that they'd picked up in Phnom Penh and were getting around on. Um, and they decided to forego the offer of the sedans that I've previously talked about that the other journalists were using for travel. Now, I'm sure that they were kind of, you know, we're, we're big guys, we can look after ourselves. Um, but maybe that was their first... Mistake, but maybe it wasn't because, as you'll see pretty soon, um, other people traveling in one of those sedans also went missing on the same day. Now, the day before April 5th, 1970, French photojournalist Gilles Caron had gone missing around the same spot that Sean and Dana would go missing on Highway 1 near the Vietnam border, just about 12 miles in from the Vietnam border on the inside of Cambodia, where, as I've explained, Uh, there was a huge amount of Viet Cong operating within these border territories. He was never seen again, Gilles Caron. and he's one of many casualties of this period of history, but also 1970, which was a really deadly year for journalists in Cambodia. Um, So, I do believe that Dana's wife, Louise, as I said previously, was at their hotel in Phnom Penh. Uh, But basically the general consensus is that that morning Sean and Dana and a group of other journalists left Phnom Penh because they'd been invited to go down to Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City, to attend what's classified as a government-sponsored press conference. Now, nothing is they've really talked about that, so I'm not sure if they were discussing um, if it was a Vietnam War thing, which I presume it probably was, and they were doing dueling stories, you know, covering multiple things at once. Um, but basically this kind of confused me because I've done the trip from Phnom Penh to Saigon along Highway 1, which is the main highway that takes you pretty much all the way, And even today, it's almost five hours drive as the roads aren't great even today, although that drive is better than the drive between Phnom Penh and Siem Reap, which I did, which takes like eight hours and it should take way shorter because the quality of the road is so bad. So I can't really imagine what the quality of the road was like in 1970, especially considering they were on motorbikes. It's 228 kilometres. And they must have left pretty early. One of the gaps in the story that I can never find uh, through all of this is exactly what time um, the journalists went missing. And I believe it was probably, judging by the footage that we have, probably mid to late afternoon, Um, but I digress. So they had travelled down to Saigon with these other journalists. Now, the other journalists had travelled in their you know, provided sedans, which gave them, you know, an escort to go with them. But Sean and Dana, who had rented these red Honda motorbikes um, and seemed like pretty cool dudes, judging by the last footage we have at least of Sean, which I'll talk about, um, they decided that they were going to travel on the motorbikes instead of in the vehicles. Now, The crazy thing about the final day of Sean and Dana is that we have not only a final picture of Sean and Dana together, which you just don't have for the remainder of their friendship that had been years, but we also have the only actual really good footage of Sean on the ground talking. Um, And that was just mere minutes before his disappearance. So, The final picture of Sean and Dana on this particular day is as they left the press conference An American journalist, their friend, who would go on to be an an anchor in the States, Steve Bell, he was the last person to probably speak with them at this press conference. Um, And he snapped this picture of them, which I've made the Spotify picture. If you are listening on Spotify, it's a really great picture. It's Sean in the forefront on his bike. It's in black and white um Dana in the background Dana my eyes aren't great obviously but um in the background Dana he has they've both got their cameras around their necks uh they're both it's hard to tell what they're wearing although we can kind of tell better in the footage that I'll talk about in a minute with Sean um but I believe they're just wearing like t-shirts Sean's got it's a red scarf um i know it is cuz there's footage of it around his neck um and he was also wearing aviators later on um and they've got those kind of i don't know what the <laughs> i don't know what the top, the name would be um for the hats not like legionnaire's hats i can't really uh oh, if someone could tell me what the style of hat is it's driving me mad we used to have to wear them in school um but they look very american um you know you could see why someone would be tempted or, you know, maybe set up a checkpoint to lure people in. I don't really know. So Steve Bell was the last person to hear them talking and basically they said to him that they had received word from people further along on Highway 1 back towards Phnom Penh that there was a makeshift checkpoint that was set up on Highway 1 about 12... uh, 12 miles in from the Vietnam border towards Phnom Penh, a few hours outside of Phnom Penh, um, that seemed to be manned by members of the Viet Cong. So Steve Bell took this photo of them on his fo- camera on on their motorbikes and Sean and Dana took off with their cameras and their motorbikes um, to check out what this was and to maybe get a scoop on an interesting story. Now as I said Highway 1 is a major highway in Cambodia even today it connects Phnom Penh right through to Vietnam it's over 100 miles long and it's the main route that you take from Phnom Penh to Ho Chi Minh City which was then Saigon. So Sean and Dana had received this information on the grapevine and they wanted to go check it out. But this wasn't just some random checkpoint. And I think at the time, Sean and Dana weren't entirely sure what was happening. Um, they could only pick up from a distance watching the whole thing happen as they were standing back maybe 500 or 1,000 metres, who knows. That's just my estimation, Um, what was going on. But we now know that... Basically, this checkpoint isn't really a checkpoint. It's a one of the cars that I've talked about previously, one of the white sedans that the journalists who were in Cambodia would travel around in. It's empty. It's parked on the street, essentially on the road, cutting it off like it's the car is creating the checkpoint. Um, now, the reason that we're able to see this and know this happened is because The crazy thing is when Sean and Dana arrived on the scene, there was some French journalists reporting there and one of them grabbed Sean to ask him some questions about what he was seeing and what he thought was going on. So we have this footage that you can watch on YouTube and I've also put it on the Unknown Passage podcast website on the Sean and Dana episode page of Sean being interviewed by these people. Now, it has French dubbing over it. It's the person in the studio explaining we spoke to photojournalist Sean Flynn who told us that um, it seemed to be, you know, a checkpoint and there seemed to be about 15 Viet Cong um, kind of surrounding it or near it. And then it zo- it shows you the Viet Cong and they're all like lined up across the road. Um, but unfortunately, we don't hear Sean's voice because it has French dubbing. But it zooms, this clip zooms right in on this white sedan parked across the road, cutting it off a very eerie, eerie shot, um, that's kind of, they maybe were filming it, not thinking it would be that important, but it's, it's you know incredibly important. Now I guess you're wondering who was in the car that they were now utilizing as this maybe lure for the Viet Cong, um, and the crazy thing is that most sources don't even bother to fill in the gaps of this part of the story um, and name the people who had been in that car. But I found the information through the POW organization in the United States, um, as well as through the Associated Press, and. So earlier that day, a French journalist who was quite a revered journalist, his name was Claude Arpin, Arpin him, um, according to the AP, another French journalist for L'Espresso of Paris, which is a magazine or newspaper, Guy Hanatou, another French guy, um, and two Japanese correspondence. One was called Akira Kusaka. The AP states that he worked for Fuji Television in Japan and Yojiro Takagi and he was the cameraman along for the ride for Fuji Television. These were the four men that were in the car at the time. Now details are sketchy about what had happened because no one was around at the time that they had been removed from the car but according to sources they had been driving through this part of Highway 1 um, these two French journalists sharing the car with two Japanese journalists and they had been removed from the car seemingly by Viet Cong um, and marched away from the car and witnesses believe that they had been killed in the neighboring eucalyptus fields now, the sad thing is details still to this day are really sketchy about these journalists, but rest assured they would never found um, none of them, and that's according to the POW Network as well as the Associated Press. Now, Claude Arpin, who went missing earlier that day on April 6th, was actually friends with Carl Robinson, who I quoted on part two, who was very good friends with Sean Flynn. This was quite like kind of a tight knit group, but it doesn't seem that he knew Sean Flynn, Claude Arpin. But this is, it seems that the car was then taken, parked in a way to cut cut off Highway 1 either as a checkpoint for the Viet Cong to use so that nobody could get through or as a lure for foreign journalists, which makes a lot more sense to me. So Sean and Dana had been radioed through this information um, at, while they were in Saigon and they wanted to get the scoop on who these people were and these journalists. And at the time, they didn't have the names of who had been in the car. It's 1970. It's a little bit harder kind of to keep track of these things this soon but by that afternoon Sean and Dana had arrived on the scene um, and Sean was speaking with these French journalists and you can go and watch you know that footage it's only about 30 seconds long. Now based on the whole scene how it looks you you would hope that the gut instinct of someone would kick in, that something's not right here and that you shouldn't proceed. And Sean and Dana should not have proceeded. The whole scene looks really staged and weird. Um, and there's, I'd just be going the complete other direction. And every other journalist on the scene, including these French ones who interviewed Sean, did not get any closer than they were, which I believe is probably maybe 500 metres down the road filming this scene happening um and then he says at the end of his reporting the French guy that they kind of um the more Viet Cong turned up there was about 15 they kind of beat a retreat back to their car now Sean and Dana did not do this and according to Carl Robinson writing for the financial review witnesses saw Sean and Dana around this time in a cafe a little bit further down the road arguing according to witnesses um, which I think are probably other journalists or photojournalists. Sean was trying to talk Dana into going further down the road towards the checkpoint and Dana was reluctant. Now, this really ties in with what I think we already knew about Dana and Sean. Dana was the more seasoned reporter. I think he had a pretty good uh, gut instinct for things. He also had a wife to think about and that's another thing I kind of thought. He's not really just thinking about himself at this point. Um, and I think his gut instinct was kicking in that something was not right. Now, they start arguing because Dana doesn't want to go any further and doesn't want to push on further down the road because he has a bad feeling about what's happening. And Sean is arguing arguing with him to go further down the road. And that really ties into, you know, Sean... People saying that he really loved combat, loved drama, and maybe thought he was invincible. Um, And this is a really scary mindset that I think people get into in other countries that can be really dangerous. Uh, You don't understand the culture. You don't fully understand what's happening. Sean and Dana have only been here for a few days um, in Cambodia. They couldn't really wrap their minds around what was even happening at this point. So, finally, the two of them, it seemed that Sean won the argument. They hopped on their red rented Honda bikes, (coughs) motorbikes, and um, they rode past all the waiting journalists that were further down the road watching from a distance, and they headed straight towards this roadblock. Now... All that is said is from witnesses who were closer and these are people um, from who were living or working in these plantations further up the road. Um, They would say basically, sorry about that. I lose my voice quite a lot, like since I had my surgery. So, basically, um, this is also journalists who are watching who couldn't really see what was happening from that distance away, as well as local villagers who are further on down the road. Witnesses report that upon arriving at this makeshift checkpoint, Sean Flynn and Dana Stone were – their motorbikes were re- relieved of them, as it's put – Um, The two of them were then taken and marched into a tree line which bordered a eucalyptus plantation on the other side and no one ever saw the two alive again. Um, It seemed that Viet Cong had grabbed them immediately, um, whether seeing them as spies. It didn't seem like there was any time for them to talk their way out of anything or anything like that. Um, Their motorbikes were immediately taken off them because that would be Um, another resource that would be incredibly helpful for the Viet Cong and um, they'd want to utilise. Um, And they were marched off into the tree line and from there they were not sighted again. Sean was 28 and Dana was 31. Their disappearances only seemed to embolden attacks on journalists in Cambodia and On May 31st, 1970, there was an attack on eight NBC and CBS reporters um, on National Road 3, which is also called Highway 3, which is about three hours south of Phnom Penh as well. The Phnom Penh Post wrote about it in a retrospective in 2013. Quote, the group of eight NBC and CBS news reporters plus one Cambodian driver drove on Khmer Rouge fighters fired a B-40 rocket that sailed right into one of their vehicles. Those who were travelling in a nearby car were captured and executed in a nearby field, unquote. So they became more and more emboldened in terms of attacking journalists. Now, the Phnom Penh Post interviewed a man called Chang Song, who at the time in 1970, he had been the information minister in Cambodia um, and he was actually due to be the escort for the group in their car on that particular day. Um, but he slept in, they went without him and were all killed and he kind of saw it as some sort of divine intervention. He said, quote, the Khmer Rouge did that all the time. You never knew whether they were villagers or Khmer Rouge. That's why many were killed then, because they didn't know. The Khmer Rouge could care less about publicity, They were savage, ruthless fighters. They had no policy. Their policy was to kill, unquote. Within just a couple of months of Sean and Dana's disappearances, by June of 1970, 26 journalists had been captured in Cambodia over just a three-week period. Three had been killed, some had been returned, and others were still missing, and many are missing even today. And I have a list courtesy of the Phnom Penh Post titled A Dangerous Year, Media Casualties in 1970 Totaled 26. And the names of the 26 journalists who uh, were either killed or are assumed dead today. And I'm just going to read their names. Gilles Caron, Claude Arpin. Sorry, I'll say who they worked for as well. I don't have their nationalities, but you can probably tell from their names. Gilles Caron for Gamma, Claude Arpin, freelance for Newsweek, Guy Hanato for L'Espress, Akira Kusaka for Fuji TV, Yujiro Takagi for Fuji TV, Sean Flynn, freelance for Time, Dana Stone, freelance for CBS. Dieter Ballendorf for NBC, George Gensluckner, Freelance, Willie Mettler, Freelance, Takeshi Yanagisawa for Nihon Denpa, Teruho Nakayima for Amori Institute, um, Tomoharu Ishii for CBS, uh, Koyiro Sakai for CBS. Ramnik Leckie for CBS. Gerald Miller for CBS. George Sivitson for CBS. Yang Lang, driver for CBS. Wells Hangen for NBC. Roger Cohn-France for NBC. Yoshihiko Waku for NBC. Raymond Meyer for ORTF, Rene Puisosu for ORTF, J Frank Frosch for UPI, Kiyoishi Sawada for UPI, and Johan. Doyen nisveld who was freelance and that's just for 1970 um a lot of japanese names on that and obviously um dutch and us as well and you'll see sean and dana on that in the five years between 1970 and the fall of phnom penh to the Khmer Rouge in 1975 37 journalists photographers and cameramen would be killed or go missing in Cambodia And during the five years of war in Cambodia, following on from that, more journalists would be killed or go missing in action than in 10 years of the Vietnam War. And this is the whole thing about Cambodia almost being forgotten um, over, you know, Vietnam. Very few, very few kind of talk about um, the impacts, especially for journalists in Cambodia at that time. Initially, the friends of Sean and Dana, because of thinking of these menace, you know, they could look after themselves, they were fit, healthy, and they would find a way back, they would talk their way out of it, they would find a way out, they would barter their way out, um, or they would turn up. Um, initially, the friends would thought that, and then one by one, they started to lose hope as the days and weeks went by. Carl Robinson wrote for the Financial Review just a couple of years ago, quote, "'As days turned to weeks with no news, I was filled with foreboding and despair and guilt too. What if I hadn't been caught and expelled trying to sneak into Cambodia only three weeks before? It's certain I would have been there too on that fateful day on my own rented motorbike.' Would I have backed Dana and refused to go any further or would I have followed Sean? I have lived with that torment ever since. After Tim Page's wounding, Sean had given me that handwritten will in case he was killed or wounded and he'd said nothing about what to do if he just disappeared. I was stunned and felt helpless. Others took care of his belongings and shipped them to Paris. Sometime later, I accepted my friend Sean's disappearance as his death. The farewell was an empty one, but not so Tim Page who devoted his life to understanding what had happened to Sean and Dana, unquote. Their other friend Nick Wheeler, who was another photojournalist, told the Wall Street Journal in 2014, quote, we all just assumed that Sean and Dana would materialise with a great story to tell, but after a while it became clear that they wouldn't, unquote. And that's where I'm going to leave it for part three and be back with part four in the next um, few days. Hopefully within four days, I plan to have it out by. Um, The next part will be the wrap up. Finally, Um, we'll talk about the search for Sean and Dana, um, a couple of instances of bodies being found where they thought it was them, but it was not. Um, Some kind of last sightings of Sean and Dana and stories that would be passed down to different people who looked into this in terms of what happened to Sean and Dana and they very wildly um, so, I guess you can come to your own conclusion by the end of part four and then kind of we'll wrap up with a little bit um about Paul Pot and what happened um after that, and why you'll understand why for decades it was you couldn't you couldn't go there to even look for these people anyway um Louise Stone looked for her husband for a long time um before ultimately having to give up, and Sean Flynn's mum looked for him for. 15 years before having him declared legally dead in 1984 she died in 1994 um, and Lily and she was heartbroken it was her only son um, and yeah it's just terrible all round um, and maybe just a silly decision by two silly boys um, and I wish that Dana had won out in that argument I really do I want to finish on an interesting story that I found um, in the Daily Mail in 2014 uh, when I was kind of researching this, it came up and the headline was, did this camera once belong to Errol Flynn's war photographer son, battered Nikon bought on eBay her same initials as Sean Flynn who disappeared in Cambodia? So this guy in 2014, he's an old he was an old guy, he, he was 71 in 2014, Paul Turner in the UK um, collects kind of random old cameras, which a lot of people do. He bought one for £51 on eBay, had it shipped to him in the UK. And when he got it, he'd never heard of Sean Flynn or anything like that. Um, but it had SF scratched onto its base um, and Sean went missing with one of his cameras. The other one, there was a couple of other ones that ended up being shipped back to Paris. And one of them is with like a collector now. Um, but he did go missing with one camera. And basically this, this fellow photographer um, who collects cameras was able to trace back this particular Nikon camera. And there's pictures of it. Um and it looks like from the era he was able to trace it back kind of through serial numbers and things like that um to the 60s when it would have been produced. It would have been built around November 67 to January 68, which is the right time frame for when Sean bought it. Um it obviously has what could very much be his initials as SF on it Um, so basically he'd never heard of Sean so he looked up a list of photographers because he was able to kind of trace it back to most likely belonging to a Vietnam War photographer so he looked up a list of photographers that went missing in Vietnam or surrounds at that time and he looked through the initials and was, the only one was Sean Flynn. Um, I, I just find that really interesting. And I'm wondering if he was ever able to confirm whether or not it was Sean's, because if it was that, that camera made it from the side of that highway in 1970 to this guy's house in the UK in 2014. And I wouldn't be surprised because things, how they work their way around, um, So, yeah, like he said that a magnifying glass shows the initials were carved uh, before the scratches. Oh, sorry, I'll go back to the context of that. Um, It basically had scratches on it, but it had initials scratched into it as well and it showed that the initials were carved before the scratches appeared, um, which indicates that the initials had been added on when the camera was new it's hard to explain but then it goes into a bit of Sean's story and I I just thought that was really interesting if it was his how it ended up there do you think that that camera is Sean's um maybe you're like a budding kind of uh expert in in these kinds of things and can find someone else with an SF initial it's not me so I will be back in the next few days uh, with the final conclusion of the Sean Flynn and Dana Stone story. I'm interested to know what you guys think happened, but I think you'll probably need a little bit more information to come to your own conclusion, particularly with the investigation um, that Tim Page did, uh, Neil Robinson did. It's, it's really kind of heartening to know that a lot of their friends for a long time, uh, Zelene Grant, they continue to look for them and try to put the pieces together and Tim Page would go back to Cambodia, you know, repeatedly. But the reason that I want to get into Pol Pot a little bit and what he did in short is because this part, you know, was very complex this time, but just a few years later um, would begin a genocide of millions of people in Cambodia. And so when you're finding bodies, it's it's more likely that they're going to come from a genocide, um, under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, um, than is likely that they would belong to Dana and Dana and Sean. Um and I'll wrap up with a few theories of what happened to them, different people's stories, some intelligence that was received as to what happened to them. Um none of them are good guys. Um it, yeah. I don't even know how to yeah I'll get into it in part four but um kind of living final days no matter how long you think Sean and Dana lived for whether you think it's they were killed on the side of that road or whether like others you think they lived for years um that existence under uh the Khmer Rouge or the Viet Cong would be um unbearable so on that positive note I'll be back tomorrow oh sorry in the next couple of days I hope that you're all well I hope you have a good week um and I'll talk to you then bye